the number of people that ask me on a daily basis, it actually creates me, it actually makes me more anxious than I, I haven't done something already. Hello, Matthew Grant here, host of the Insect London podcast and delighted to have you joining us. Now, one of the downsides of everyone being stuck at home and only being allowed to exercise once a day is there, of course, far less time to listen to podcasts. So it really is a special treat to be invited to join you, whatever you are up to right now. Now, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Nigel Walsh will be well known to many of you. He's a prolific commentator about what's been going on in insurance, innovation, technology and insurance for many years. We've had him on stage at Instech London, and you may have also come across him as co-host of the InsurTech Insider podcast. Nigel does have a day job, though. More on that shortly. He's a partner at Deloitte, and he advises insurance companies on technology. Uh, no surprise, we managed to cover a lot of ground in this one. I'm really delighted you managed to carve out some time in these difficult periods to have a chat. Delighted to be here. I think you've now surpassed a number of uh, InsurTech insiders that we've done as well. So uh, I think I'm catching you up next. Uh, well, good. Well, we're going to come back to that in a second. So just a quick introduction for anyone out there that, that doesn't know you. Uh, you're a partner at Lloyd's. You've been there since 2016. Before that, you were at Capgemini. And as you alluded to just now, you are a co-host of the podcast InsurTech Insider, which uh, covers topics around innovation and new areas of insurance. And I'm sure we're going to be finding out a bit more about that. But I guess the first question that, that many people have, given how prolific you are with your writing and commenting on social media and turning up at lots of events, is actually what, what do you do in your day job? <laughs> is, this, is this telling your mum what you actually do? Which I think is, is, is a nightmare task for almost anyone that works in insurance and technology often. Um, I, I guess the easiest way to describe it for me is I do... Uh, or I look at doing disruptive technology and insurance, i.e. how do we help insurers leverage new technology or technology in general for their business, but for business sake rather than just technology. So you figured out how to combine both being uh, well known for your, your comments uh, at events and on the media, but also actually have a job that pays you for uh, giving people advice. So well, congratulations. I, I'm very, I'm very lucky in that I've, I have some simple rules to live by. And I've always talked about do what you love. Um, and I'm very lucky, as you said, I get paid to do something I absolutely thoroughly enjoy and, and, and love entirely. So, yeah, it's, a, it's it's been a good combination for me. Oh, congratulations. Well, we've got a lot to cover in, in 30 minutes. Now, we're definitely going to come back and talk about some things COVID-related uh, because, of course, that's everyone's minds just now. But there's also a lot going on. Beyond that, um, now I, I first came across you when you were talking on stage in Cologne at an event back in 2016, and it was really just at the really early stage. You know, in, in short, I don't think it even been invented as a term. So you clearly seen come, something coming in this space quite early on. So, so what was it about what was going on that you got you interested in starting to sort of comment on activities and follow companies doing some pretty interesting things? 2016, it feels like a lifetime ago, but, but actually that was almost the end of my first phase of conversations around, dare I say, digital insurance or modern-day insurance companies. And I guess at that point, I'd been at Capgemini probably six, seven years by then. And I'd been through a stage of um, growing organizations. The Capgemini, when I started, was two people in insurance. I left there when there was about 1,100 or so. 
Uh, and we've done the same thing for lots of insurers time and time again. But the CEO challenged me, said, if everyone's doing this, why is it taking me X hundred thousand man days effort and multiple years to go do? And that phrase stuck in my mind for a very long time. And actually working with one of the partners, the, the Salesforce guys, I've long been an admirer of what they've done. They were cloud first, they were native. I can rock up to the, to the Salesforce website at any point, give them my credit card and get started. And it was that point that I started to go, well, why can't I do that for an insurance business? And we've traditionally been stuck either in mainframe or legacy replacement with old platforms for more modern versions, but spending a lot of money for not getting much more. So for me, my... My secret ambition, my secret burning desire underneath is, can I turn up with a credit card and start an insurance business, leveraging the technologies and things that we want um, underneath that? And as you said, back in 2016, that's when it went from core system transformation into digital insurance, and then, of course, now into what we all know and love as InsurTech. It's a great way of thinking about any problem, actually. If you give somebody some money, can you go out there and, and, and solve it? You know, is, it, is it therefore a question of bringing together smart people, smart technology, but it's doable versus it's just really intractable? So, so just picking up on that theme, so when you sort of saw this opportunity out there, uh, so let's call it five years ago, and got quite excited about it, if you can sort of project forward to where we are today, so just, just, just take it sort of back to, say, February before we all started getting caught up in, in the pandemic, you know, what would your um, younger self have thought if you, if you could have seen the future about you know, what's happened in that five-year period with, with all the technology and interest and money out there? Is it, has it been a success or are there some things that maybe haven't really worked out as you might have hoped? It feels like if I look back five years ago to where we are today, we're still very much in an evolutionary spot. And where's our, I hate, I hate the phrase, where's our Uber moment? Where's our revolution? Where's our this will always change from this moment forward. And I think there are some brave souls out there, whether they're startup founders or insurance or broker CEOs that have made a bet and gone with it. And we've also seen some really good, you know, full stack players, whether it's in Germany or the US that have gone, you know what, we're just gonna go build it from scratch. And we're gonna go after either a D to C or D to B to C type model. But broadly, you could argue we've not moved far enough, fast enough. And I think the benefit, I know you said don't mention um, COVID so much, but I think the, the, the upside of COVID or any pandemic or any event that every single one of us, either as a customer, as an employee or someone in the ecosystem has been through, we've all been through, we've all experienced it. And I think this might be the reset moment that we need. I mean, if someone said to you, Matthew, a few weeks back, do you think you could take the entire London insurance market and move it home overnight and still function? without really missing a heartbeat, I suspect most of us would have turned around and gone, there's no way, fall over and laughed a little bit and said, it'll give us a year or two years and we'll do it bit by bit and test it. But the resilience of us as individuals, of the market, of the situation that we're in, we've just got on and done it. And I genuinely hope we can spring forward from this rather than bounce backwards to the way it used to be, because there's a lot to be learned from the speed at which we've adopted and got on and done things. So I guess to answer your question, if I look back five, five years ago and look forward, I'd be pleased we've made progress, but I think we could have done so much more. I think it's extraordinary, really, how clearly the insurance market has managed to cope with that. I mean, particularly London, where it was so face-to-face. -face. I mean, there's an article two months ago, and I never quite figured out whether it was tongue-in-cheek or whether it was real, where they were saying there was real concern by the 
the brokers and the underwriters because they wouldn't be able to close the deals at Ascot and Wimbledon and, and everything else this year. And I mean, we haven't, you know, we've had issues in other things like weddings, but we haven't really, to my mind, and you've spoken to people and I've spoken to people about saying we just can't get the business done. It does seem to be, it does seem to be working. It might be messy, but it's, it's happening. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's sort of combination of, it's been happening in the background and therefore when everyone was forced to do this remotely, they could do it. Um, but it does yeah. need that big. It does need that big shift, doesn't it, to get people to force the change as opposed to doing it incrementally. Well, I go. I go a level deeper into that. I go back away from technology to the the strategy side of it. I guess some, to some extent, and go. All right, that makes sense for current world. And if I ignore the personal line space for a second, because that's largely unaffected, other than motive for whatever reasons around refunds and whatever else. But ignore that piece. If you're a broker in the city of London or any of the regions, wherever else. If you've got an existing client and an existing relationship, you know what? This works as is because you've maintained those, providing you've had good service. Most people, given the the uh, the ability just to continue as is, are likely to stay where they are. I suspect, though, if I was going after new business or going into a competitive bid, how how does that look compared to um, just a simple renewal? And I do wonder and do start to break down the analysis between net new business, going after competitive new business, or renewals. And I'd like to see at some point post all this, what happened to renewals? Did they stay as they did in previous years? Did they go up because people were afraid to afraid to move given the uncertainty elsewhere? And then the same for net new business. Would I want to be out there doing tenders right now? Um, it's not impossible, but some of these renewals are you know lengthy in cycle, months and months and months on end, depending on the sector as well, of course. So um, it'll be interesting to see how those things pan out over the next couple of weeks and months. It will, yeah. I mean, I, I, you may have come across the the recent Malcolm Gladwell book, you know, Talking to Strangers. Do you know that one? Yes, please. I mean, what's really interesting about that is his point in there about actually we get deceived into thinking that human interaction gives us an edge because we think we know more about people. And, and what he points out, actually, is often when you do things remotely, there's a much more um, objective and actually better way of assessing the situation and he kind of uses judges looking at whether people are going to skip bail or not as an example but i think back to your point about renewals you may find that actually your data orientated decisions and people able to provide the information needed to the client actually does give a better experience than you know the the, the, the sort of how good somebody is at the pitch or doing the entertaining around it so yeah i think it's a really interesting question you are challenging one of the other variables of course in there as well and whilst we talked about technology earlier we didn't say anything about the individuals involved in this. So if you're looking about the judges making decisions or technology making decisions on uh, whether you skip jail or not, I think that's one of the questions of one of the AI exams, actually, uh, from memory. But if you look at some of those sorts of pieces, you could start to say, actually, if all these things are equal, the only thing that we change is the location of your work. For the people that have always done it, can they keep going as they are? But if you then brought a new variable in and, and said, actually, if we change the people, what would that do to renewals or to um, new business sales? And I think that could also be quite an interesting thing. Does it require a whole new mindset and different cohort of individuals that have never done this and adapt quicker to the remote working because that's what they're just used to? In terms of your own your own personal areas that you are most, or you have been sort of most, I don't use the word excited because we're British and we don't get excited, but you know, most enthusiastic about, let's say, which areas, do you, which areas have you seen the most promise in the last five years? I guess if I broke it down, I spent probably, you know, 40 to 50% of my time in, in personal lines, another 30 to 40 or so in 
London market, the specialty, and the remainder actually, which is really interesting in the health space. Uh, the, the thing that I find more fascinating is the convergence of all of those things, because one of my big frustrations, and I'll come on to later, is the silos. And I don't think we should live our world in silos. And actually, we buy too many products as an individual or as organizations. And I get that if you're a, if you're buying specialty risk or looking after an oil rig or a fleet of aircraft or whatever else. As a consumer, we're starting to be overloaded with all these individual pieces. I think the winners in that space would be folks that are able to balance these things, not just in insurance, but actually beyond that as well. I, I'll come on to that later. This is a really interesting area because I see it. There's two ends of the spectrum on that. There's, there's either a, a sort of mindset that goes, I want to get the most cost-effective and efficient insurance coverage at a kind of detailed level. So if I buy something with Amazon, the insurance is embedded in there. I want to get the best price on life insurance. I wear my watch and get my price. And you kind of have to do the work, but you optimize around each individual coverage. And then the other end of the spectrum is, look, I don't really care in individually how you charge me, but what I want to know is if I have a loss, you're going to, I'm going to be covered. And I don't want to have to go and claw through all the wordings and worry about you know, gaps or paying twice. So where, where do you see, I mean, just picking up on your point, where do you see the world moving? Are we moving more towards the everything is covered? or to the just individual optimize around the detail? Intriguing one. Um, I, and I think it's going to be different for different cohorts of different individuals. I don't think any one size will fit all. You should be allowed to buy these things in the way that you want to or the way that you see fit. So I do think um, me as an individual, I'd like everything bundled into the thing that I love. I mean, I have a, a whole thing around do people actually care about insurance or not? And you talked about policy wording. Well, you find me any any individual that has read their policy wording. I was going to say outside of insurance, but even in insurance, I've been known to stand on stage and ask people at an insurance conference, you know, put your hands up if you've read your policy wording. Other people have done the same thing. And in a group of insurance professionals, let's say there's 300 in the room, maybe you get four hands put the, uh, go up. And that to me is, is very telling about the industry itself you know we assume things based on the brand that we've bought from maybe someone my age or your age Matthew will have done that because we recognize the brand but if it's a brand new brand to market from a startup or whatever else you're not going to throw the wording you're going to trust the brand that you like because it's fresh and funky and whatever else and not gone much further than that so I think it does depend on how all these things start to link together in those ways and what your individual circumstances at that point if you are um, I guess if you're going to the corporate space, though, I guess knowing and having the detail behind each of those individual risks is actually what your business is as a, as a risk manager or as well. So you, you do need to know that sort of piece. So I don't think any one size fits all. And I think you have the ability and right to change those over time as well. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. So here's a, here's a question for you sort of along that theme, and you kind of touched on it. So if in this GDPR compliant world, meaning you knew your data is going to be protected, if you had an organization that said, Nigel, you know, tell me all about your life and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you insurance that's based on you know, the fact that you haven't got anything to hide and you've got lots of good data, would you would you go for that or would you just feel that was either too good to be true or just not not trust the fact they were gonna abuse your information or data? That in principle says, would I share my information to be to be better off? And I think there's two types of people, people that are prepared to share or people that aren't. And I fall into the camp. My son actually was doing some homework yesterday. I was asking about DNA and I brought up my 23andMe DNA results and said, here, I would happily give those to an insurer 
should they request him to go, this is me, know everything about me, because fundamentally I'm a trustful individual. I believe they have my interests at heart as opposed to going, well, actually, Nigel, your parents were diabetic, therefore we're not going to cover you for X, Y, and Z. If we keep talking about moving into the partner space and being there before the event rather than just ensuring you after the event, I think the only way to get there is is, tr- is trusting people with the, with the data. So I, I, I'm of the opinion that if someone said to me, give me everything that you've got, I will tell you how you can be healthier, happier, live longer. Why wouldn't you do that? Yet I have other friends that, that have no desire to share any ounce or any iota of data or don't trust other sources with it at all. So it's a, it's a very interesting one. I think Germany is interesting in general. They've been GDPR or their equivalent for the last 10 years or so. It's a very different environment. And obviously it's got a lot more history to it over there. I don't know. What's your view? Would you share your DNA results with an insurer if they asked you? That's a tricky one because I think there's still some flaws or limitations on that. But I, but I was going to what I was going to say. If anybody's listening and they've got a product that is looking for two people who are willing to share their data, uh, then let us know because Nigel and I would be your first two clients or your next two clients. As, <laughs> good. So, uh, so another question for you, Nigel. Just given given all your knowledge in this sector and the people you see, uh, just pretend no one's listening now, or certainly no one at your employers is listening. Um, have you ever considered running your own business, or have you got a fantasy business that you would like to go and run? And bear in mind that this is a a, a family program, so it has to be within <laughs> certain constraints. Well, I'm laughing because when I saw your question, if I the number of people that ask me on a daily basis, it actually creates me, it actually makes me more anxious than I, I haven't done something already. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, am I missing an opportunity that because I've not done something or not started my own business? Um, I, I guess there's a, definitely an itch there to be scratched at some point. I, I guess my, my opening premise is I think we have so much to offer where I sit today and the access to the skills, capability, market, community, that my role and what I enjoy doing in terms of connecting the two things together, whether it's startup or technology to insurer or broker, uh, customer or elsewhere, I'm fully fulfilled in that mode. Um, that, that said, there's loads of opportunity, I think, out there. And I really and truly admire the folks that have taken the plunge and you know bet lots of stuff on going after building a startup. I admire the guys that have tried and failed because I think – if you don't try these in the first place, then you never know where you're going to get to. And I, I enjoy spending my time working with these guys and learning from these people day in, day out of the trials and tribulations. I've always had the, I don't want to say excuse, but I've always been at that point where I've said I'm at a certain stage in life with kids at school and uh, mortgages and all the, you know, all the usual things that we go through. Uh, but then I also sit back and go, there's no hurry either. I plan to be around for a very long time if someone takes my DNA and tells me how, how to do it, by the way. But I plan to be around for a very long time, but there's no... There's no real rush into this. I don't want to be a me too provider of something that exists today. But I think back to the earlier question about, you know, five years from now, how far forward have we actually got? I think many of these startups have been born in frustration about how quickly we've got to a point. And if some of these things take long or take too long going forward, at some point, a group of individuals will turn around, maybe myself included, and go, Let's go do this with the backing of the individuals that we know in either the VC or angel community, the insurers, the capacity providers, uh, or, or elsewhere. And then equally, I, I like the folks like you know Mark Dowds and Matt Jones and the guys that have jumped from previous worlds into 
and to the, into the investment community. So there's loads of opportunities, uh, and there's never a never you're never too young or too old to start. Just look at Captain Tom Moore becoming a number one chart topper at the age of 99, right? Yeah, inspiration to us all. So I think the message behind that, anybody again listening, if you've got a good idea and want Nigel to help you, then you know you know where to find him. But but there is a, you just touched on it again there, I think there is a quite important part of that, which is you tend to see people either early stage of their career where they've got you know, a career ahead of them, but they haven't got big expenses with families and all the rest of it to look after, or maybe later on in their career where they've kind of got beyond that stage. And it is quite difficult. You know, there's a certain sort of bit in the middle, unless you've got someone back and you like a, a VC that is going to spend a few million to kind of get you up and running and, and pay competitive salaries. So, I, I, yeah, you've got a couple more years, Nigel. We'll, we'll maybe come back in uh, a few years and find out where you got to. Never, never say never, right? Um, and then the, the sort of linked question to that then, given all these companies you see, what about from an investment? I mean, people don't always realize, but the UK has got some of the most uh, beneficial investment um, regime for or, or sort of tax benefits for investing for early stage angel investors. Are you are you an investor in any of the companies you, you come across? Yes, but only recently. Um, and again, it's not something I do uh, publicly or otherwise. I mean, obviously, they're all noted or whatever else. I, I held off for quite a while. Um, one, because I work for an audit firm and that comes with certain restrictions or whatever else. So it has to go through a very rigorous process internally for uh, any of those approvals or what's not. And I wouldn't want to create conflict, uh, either in my ability to help them or, or, or elsewhere. Um, but for me, I, I, there's, there's a few. Uh, again, I've, I've not shared them publicly. I don't intend to either. Um, but I do it for two reasons. One, I, I firmly believe in the individuals or the team that have gone out on a limb to go do something. And two, they are doing something truly different that I believe can make a fundamental change in the market that we all know and love. If it's just me too, and it's another route to market for something that we've got today, I'm unlikely to put any of my limited funds available into those things going forward. But if it's something that makes a difference and I think actually has an opportunity to do something different going forward, then I'm, I'm all ears. But, uh, yeah, I, I do some. There's some. There's some really, really great angel investors out there that I admire, and I spend a lot of time connecting angels to startups as well. So, um, if the opportunity arises and the time is right, then I, I uh, yeah, I'll, I, I may look at things. Your, your mail inbox is going to be even fuller after we had this conversation. <laughs> well, that's really. Hard. I, I will tell you now. And I'm sure you're the same. You must get a hundred LinkedIn requests or Twitter notes or whatever else it might be or emails. And I'm, I have been rubbish, terrible at declining or focusing where you spend your time on. And I realize you just can't help everyone all the time. So I do my best to triage and put things in different places. I got to the stage where I, you know, I mean, some of the requests that come through are just silly, you know, sitting my ball without any rationale or whatever. I'm like, just, this, it, someone asked me last week, actually, how long have I known company X, Y, Z? We've just done something with them. It's very exciting. The reality is I said, to them, I've known this guy for three years. We started the conversation a long time ago, knew you wanted to go do something together. And it's just that when the time was right, it all worked out. These aren't, hey, send me an email, we just get interested overnight. It's, I mean, there are some things that pop up that are interesting, but it's, it takes a while back to the point about relationships before, right? It takes a while to believe in what people are doing and see where they're going. Yeah, exactly. And you start to get a, you know, after a while, you get a feel for the, either the, the business opportunities or the people or both are the ones that are, are going to work. What else is out there you're looking at thematically or you're sort of interested in we should talk about? We touched on briefly a minute ago around um, convergence. And I guess convergence for me is the customer convergence. So 
the silos piece frustrates me as an individual. And I think if it's back to the, how do we go scratch the itch? Let's assume I'm insured with a composite insurer that's got life, health, pet, investments, pensions. I want to be looked after as a customer, not a policy. And my very big frustration, I've worked in contact centers before insurance for uh, more specifically, was when you phone in someone, you get, you know, uh, welcome to XYZ, what's your policy number? Well, actually, have us start with what's your name? And it always used to drive me mad. And when people treat you as a policy, not a customer, it starts to tell you a lot about how they treat individuals or treat you going forward. So one of my bugbears is, is, is customer convergence. I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done. The whole fintech stroke insurtech community has got a lot of opportunity here. If you look at some of the challenger banks and how they're leveraging marketplaces specifically by bringing together all those things into your, into one place. We've been doing this for years. I mean, 20 years ago, it was, it was and it was that long ago, it was Egg Money Manager. Now it's called Open Banking. So we've, it's not our first rodeo. I just think customers are more ready for it today. And people believe in it more, given that we're more digital than where we were uh, 20 odd years ago. I've had a bugbear with chief customer officers. I love the idea of it. But walk into an insurance company and ask them who owns a customer. I don't think you get a straight answer to that in that during the distribution phase, it might be sales and distribution. During the service phase, it must be head of service. And if there's any claims, obviously, it's a chief claims officer. But who owns ultimately the customer experience from an insurance perspective? Which goes back to the convergence point. If we get those things right and start working customer in rather than product out or positioning product, we've got an opportunity to go solve something very big in the industry. And that's not just personalized. That's the whole thing. I guess your, your best example of a chief customer officer might be the good old-fashioned broker. Because if you own the relationship from a broker or agent perspective, you've got a really, really good story to, to, to tell and you know where you go to should anything arise. Yeah, I mean, the most extreme version of that is, is life insurance. I mean, you buy, I mean I, I'm for example, I, mean, I bought life insurance about 15, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, actually, just about when I got married. And I haven't been in contact, or well, they haven't been in contact with me with insurance companies since. I mean, it's a sort of ultimate extreme version of that lack of engagement. It's starting to happen in the motor. I mean, Risk have got something going now with BMW, WRISK, where they, you, you basically you get three months worth of insurance, not the one week one. We're kind of getting short on time, but I did want to come back to COVID and pandemic. And given the fact you're, you're pretty good at doing forecasts, um, although I did notice that you self score your forecast each year which is a bit like marking your own homework so i think next year you should maybe give it out to an independent assessment um but but what can you give like one or two of the big changes you think we'll see coming out of this that you know beyond the sort of obvious ones like we're going to get better at working digitally and offices aren't going to be so popular god the million dollar question right we're still stuck in the middle of it and we're trying to look to the future and i think actually i've been writing quite a lot uh some of it or most of it actually internal for for clients and everything else but i guess the one thing that springs to mind time and time again is, I think we, as I said at the outset, that the whole point about consensus and actually seeking permission rather than forgiveness, which is almost the startup mentality, I do think the market as a whole will now shift forward or leap forward, I hope, rather than shift um, into a way that says we no longer need to go back time and time again and run around the houses to get sign off for these things. How do we leap forward into a new world? Uh, it feels pretty obvious, but I, I I fear for the springy back to the way things always were. Um, I look at the future of London a lot in terms of not uh, not London market or Lloyd's or anything like that, but as a hub. And actually, if you look at the resilience of organisations and where we 
have people and stuff like that. Will this be a firm shift to regions where we actually remove not just London, but cities all over the world, where we start to go, actually, we're going to decentralise rather than centralise, where I think lots of this happened over the last uh, the last uh, couple of years. And then I guess technology, more importantly, I think, you know, at one point, uh, laptops were almost as valuable as toilet paper, if you look at the rush to go buy them. Um and what I mean by that was companies weren't agile enough to go and move their workforces off-site into emergency DR centers or whatever else they may have, because no one really geared up at this sort of level or extent to shift everyone home in this sort of way. Um, now we're there. Now we've borne the cost, and it will, it will be there for quite a while, of creating this digital or agile workforce. How do we leap forward? We don't want thousands of people back in the same old offices um, doing what they've always done on, on this new technology. So how do we actually spring forward with that piece? And I think there's actually a whole host of new opportunities arisen as a result of this, whether it's new products filling the gaps that didn't exist before. And you've seen the examples from Wimbledon and others. So pandemic stuff was there. You talked about it before on a previous show, I believe, around um, it being in the market, but there being a low uptake. I think people's attitudes to this sort of stuff, their views on policy worries and so much more, Will, will dramatically change. But that all comes back down to what will the reputation of insurers be coming out of this? And I wrote a piece you've, you've probably seen online already around what insurers are around the world. There's, there's a list of about 100 companies around the world and what they've done. And it's just for information only. It's not an opinion piece, but it just shows what some countries have done, where governments have stepped in, where state regulators have stepped in, or more importantly, where insurers have stepped forward and said, this is the right thing to do for our clients. But in many of these cases, it's back down to this whole utility of insurance. And if we treated it as utility, in many of these cases, for some of the commodity products, it would have just happened automatically. So why do we need the same old things that we've always done? No, I mean, it's really helpful. Actually, you said DR, so disaster recovery. As you're saying that, it just it occurs to me of all these organizations that have built Sort of offices on standby for when they get bombed or catches fire and they have, they're expecting to take somebody to a different location. Yeah, that's going to change now because people can can work from home. And then the other one on your your article, you wrote an excellent article uh, which we did push out through our newsletter on I think it was over 40 companies around the world and pointed out that the UK was maybe a bit behind. And, and thank you because Admiral um, took notice and have now just offered me a, a £50 rebate on my motor insurance. So uh, thank you for helping with that. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not down to me at all. It was, it was information alone. There's now 100 people on that list. And it's generally really interesting to see. Um, your DR piece is interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, the disaster recovery is interesting because we've all planned for things like um, cyber. And cyber has been in the spotlight for the last couple of years, hasn't it? Without, without a shadow of a doubt. Cyber, if you look at the World Economic Forum uh, uh, top 10 or top 20 global risks report, well, pandemic is low likelihood, but high impact. I think it's number eight on the list from memory. There's cyber and climate change and all that sort of stuff is higher up the list. But if I was in insurance right now, I'd be looking at every one of, the, every one of those other risks and going, what can insurance do today to mitigate against those going forward? And how do we start planning given that we've now all level set, we're at a baseline of this going forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's those, it's those things that people think are sort of black swan, long tail, you know, 100-year term periods sort of won't happen in their lifetime. But you get enough of those different types of events, and they do happen in your lifetime, and you can't just pretend it was a surprise. 
No longer are they every hundred years. I mean, we've all been through storm, hurricane, uh, tsunami, cyber, now pandemic. I mean, you could argue, I'm, I'm 44, we've lived through lots of those things. They're not really one in a hundred. Maybe the events themselves are, but actually add them all together. And there's some interesting things going on out there. Yeah, but that is exactly the point. That's why people get confused because you can talk about a one in a hundred year event hitting Miami as a hurricane, and that probably is one in a hundred. You can yeah. talk about a one in a hundred Katrina. You can talk about a one in a hundred big pandemic. But but yeah, when you stack them all up, the the loss is not a one in a hundred. You know, that's the big difference that people get mixed up over. Yeah. You know, it's a loss versus the event. One question that I like to ask everybody, and you're particularly prolific in this area, is how how on earth do you find the time? and the ability to gather so much information and, and then repackage that. I mean, what's your sort of clever trick you do to be able to do that that you could maybe share with other people? Well, I don't think it's a clever trick. I mean, I have to say it's a, it's a labor of love more than anything else. I mean, I generally, as a city, I, I love what I do. I, I do what I love. So I'm very fortunate there. Uh, I'm forever listening, listening to podcasts. I mean, as I said earlier, I, I love what you guys are doing. I try to vary the uh, topics and inputs. So not just insurance. Obviously, I'm a massive technology geek. Uh, sadly, as my wife will tell you and kids will tell you. Um, so I try to take examples and stuff from all over, all, A, all over the world and B, all, lots of different industries that I have lots of insights on, whether it's cycling or automotive or um, connected technologies and stuff like that. I'm forever reading. I love reading about people and um, successes and failures. So we, I think a lot of this community generally read some of the same or similar things i just tried to broaden the horizon number one like, like many i'm sure i missed the commute right now i actually found myself cutting the grass a it didn't need it but b just to listen to a podcast on sunday so i was out there cutting the grass listening to a podcast trying to get my steps and exercise up at the same time so um podcasts reading snippets it's hard to decipher some of the stuff out there because there's lots of drivel dare i say as well and um if i ever start to do that someone should shout at me very very quickly but you, you, people know who to follow or where to find original opinion and original content, which I think is really interesting, actually. Finally, Deloitte's the member of Instant London, which we very much appreciate. And you, you, you've turned up at quite a few events. It's interesting on, you know, for anybody listening, you, what's your sort of view and, and why, why do you support us? Uh, that, that's really simple. I mean, it's back to doing what you love and working with good people. I think um, having met you, uh, Paolo originally, Robin, the whole team, for me, it's... Uh, You've got a good bunch of people looking to build a community. I mean, I was involved very early on with Startup Bootcamp with Sabine and team, and it's a great community, but you could tell early on that there were cohorts that goes in ways, whereas it feels like, or it felt like, and prove it rightly, Instep London was around for a long time um, and hopefully will be, will be going forward. I mean, London to me is still the home of global insurance. We have all the right people, all the right talent, all the right passion. Um, it's an absolutely fantastic place to meet people and accelerate those, some of those cycles uh, and have short, sharp conversations about whether you can help or, or not help or go and learn. And I've been to many of the events where you, you go along and you listen and you, it triggers an idea or you meet someone new or whatever else. So I generally love the people that I meet day in, day out there. And I think, as I said at the, uh, at the beginning, I, we are, we're in a very fortunate position in that we can bring lots of different people. You had Dave Taylor on, on tax and stuff like that recently. There's loads and loads of capability here that I want to be able to show up almost like uh, an Avenger and go actually bring more people and say, well, what, what can we do to help? And that's my opening gambit in most, most cases that people come talk to us. So my, well, how can I help? And if I can help people, I'd love to be able to open up the access to the firm that we've got and say, well, what is it we can do to accelerate and make you guys successful? So 
Insect London for me is that perfect opportunity to do, do those things together without being um, on the edges, but being right in the middle of it. Yeah, well, tremendous. And uh, thank you for your support. And I think just pick up a point I think you made previously, which is just that last one about Deloitte's, which is you're, you're there for a whole range of companies, not just the big ones, but you've got things you can offer to some of the the smaller size companies as well, who you know, some of which are going to become bigger companies in, in due course. So, uh, yeah, people should. People ultimately, and I've worked with startups that are pre-startup, dare I say, with one man an idea or one woman an idea that started off, all the way through to your to your large, you know, multinationals that want to work with startups and vice versa. So, yeah, there's a whole host of stuff that we do in that space. Brilliant. Well, Nigel, that's been tremendous. Thank you very much. I will let you get on with your your day job, but you know, really appreciated this and look forward to seeing you face to face at some time when we're all relieved from captivity and get out in the world again. I generally can't wait. So if you see me running around insect London hugging people, you'll know exactly why. <laughs> it's so uh, but really great to chat. Thanks. Thanks. If you enjoyed that, you can find Nigel on LinkedIn and you too can check his 2020 predictions and see what he's thinking about going on in innovation and insurance. Talking of LinkedIn, I've also found some time to start writing again and a chance to dig a bit deeper into some of the topics we've been covering in these podcasts and a hint of what's coming up. Now, if you do fancy seeing Instech London live from the safety of your own home, then Robin and I are both hosting regular live chat events each week where you can see us and our guests exploring topics of the moment. You can turn up, send us your questions, and you can even host one with us as well. Let us know if you'd like to join us. Google Bright Talk Instech London or find more information at the website www.instech.london. And also, if you fancy a five-minute injection of Instech London into your Wednesday morning, you'll find out how to sign up for our spam-free handcrafted newsletter there too.